Hello, my name is Jody B. Mott, and welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the children's books we love. On this twice-monthly podcast, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts, such as writers, teachers, and librarians, about their own favorite children's books. The poem I'm going to start off the podcast today is called Buses. It was written by Russell Hoban, and I found it in the poetry collection, I Thought I'd Take My Rat to School, Poems from September to June. And these were selected by Dorothy M. Kennedy, and the book was illustrated by Abby Carter. Russell Hoban was an American writer who lived in England from 1969 until his death in 2011. He wrote science fiction and fantasy books for adults, and he wrote several books for children as well, including such titles as Francis the Badger, The Mouse and His Child, and Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. School Buses by Russell Hoban You'd think by the end of June they'd take themselves away, get out of sight. But no, they don't. They don't at all. You see them wading through July in clumps of sumac near the railroad, or behind a service station, watching, always watching for a child who's let go of summer's hand and strayed. I have seen them hunting on the roads of August, empty buses scanning woods and ponds with rows of empty eyes. This morning I saw five of them, parked like a week of school days, smiling slow in orange paint and smirking with their mirrors in the sun. But summer isn't done. Not yet. My guest today is Mary Cole, author of Writing Irresistible Kidlet, the ultimate guide to crafting fiction for young adult and middle grade readers. And she's also a freelance consultant for writers. You can find Mary's website about her book at kidlit.com and her website about her consulting services at marycole.com. Thank you for joining me today, Mary. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, I've mentioned you're author of Writing Irresistible Kidlet, and um, there are a lot of writing books out there, but you wrote one specifically for uh, writing children and uh, young adult fiction. Uh, Why did you decide that it was important to have a book that focused on that particular type of writing? You're right. There are a ton of writing guides, uh, plot structure, formula guides, voice guides, character guides. Um, The market was really looking to focus. It was it was at a great. So the book was published in 2012. And it came along at a time when children's books were exploding in the marketplace. A lot of people were becoming interested in in writing them in a much bigger way. And I really felt a passion for children's books. I think uh, great fiction for children reaches a very grateful and engaged readership at a time in their lives when you could actually make a big difference by telling a great story. And so that's why I was always passionate about the market. But then I saw a need of a lot of aspiring writers becoming interested in writing for those age groups. And Writer's Digest, my publisher, was looking for a book to fill that niche. So it all kind of came together. Now, you offer a lot of uh, helpful hints to uh, writers of Kidlet in your book. You talk about plot structure, how to develop memorable characters, and again, focusing on how to do that with, uh, like uh, like I said, middle-grade books and young teen uh, books. Um, but for, for young writers uh, just starting out writing this sort of thing, what's one bit of advice that you think would be the most important thing for them to know as they're just starting out and focusing on this kind of literature? Well, this is actually why I think your podcast is has such a great premise. Um, I want everybody who wants to write in children's books to read a lot of children's books. Um, a lot of 
writers that are just starting out, they I've sometimes heard this this refrain of, well, I can't pollute the well. You know, I, I don't want to read widely because I, I'm so focused on my own ideas and I don't want them to become somehow corrupted. But I think that there are so many wonderful lessons to be learned from those who came before us. And I think that's especially true on the children's shelves. So one of the other than just getting your butt in the chair and writing um, and developing a regular writing practice daily, if at all possible, even if it's for five or 10 minutes, my next advice would be to read widely, to read in categories that you may not seem interested in, because there are so many incredible voices out there. And you really, you can't know them until you know them. Oh, definitely, definitely. Now, as I mentioned, you're also a, a freelance consultant for writers. Can you talk a little bit about the kind of services that you offer? Yeah, absolutely. So I was a literary agent for five years, and I lived out in New York City and San Francisco, both very big literary cities. And uh, then I decided, you know, I made a very boring adult cost of living decision to move to Minneapolis, which is where my husband is from. And uh, I decided that I couldn't act as a literary agent and be a good, uh, good value to my clients by not being in New York City. I'm one of those kind of hands on people. I really like to be boots on the ground. And so when I moved here, I decided to focus on working directly with writers. And I do everything from picture book editing to editing, uh, like really hands-on developmental editing, which means focusing on character and plot development and, and voice. So not just proofreading, but really kind of getting into the nitty gritty of the storytelling for uh, partial and complete novels. And I, I work on query letters. I do consulting. If, if you just have a question, we can get on the phone. I do all sorts of various services and you can learn more about them at marycole.com and that's Cole with a K. And one thing that I've actually started doing, I started doing last month are uh, webinars. So about once a month or so, I'm now going to be speaking live directly to writers and it was really fun. I had like 300 people at my query letter uh, webinar. I have one on first pages coming up uh, in October and then you can find more kidlit.com. There's a webinars and events tab up now, which is brand new. So you can check out more. Now, the the book you chose as one of your uh, favorite kids' books is uh, Holes by Lewis Socker, and it was uh, first published in 1998 by Ferrar, Strauss, and Giroux, and it also won the Newbery Award in 1999. Now, I know it's a very well-known book, but there, for those who may not have had a chance to read it yet, can you talk a little bit about what it's about? Absolutely. So this is an oldie, I guess now, but a goodie to me, the nineties were like two minutes ago. So I'm still amazed that it's 2018 right now. Um, so, but, but I, so it may be familiar, but the, the synopsis is this, a boy named Stanley Yelnuts, which is a palindrome believes that he's cursed by his quote unquote, no good, dirty, rotten pig stealing great grandfather. And uh, this happened in his backstory. In his present story, he's wrongfully accused of stealing and he's sent to Camp Green Lake, which is a juvenile detention facility where he must dig holes. One hole a day as deep and wide as his shovel with no water, no rest and the same tomorrow and the day after that. So the narrative of Camp Green Lake 
and of Stanley trying to make the best of his strange situation by befriending some of the other campers is mixed together with the narrative of outlaw kissing Kate Barlow, a former school teacher whose love is killed. The connection seems non-existent at first, but then the threads start to weave together. Um, a boy Stanley befriends, Stanley's pig-stealing great-great-grandfather, Kiss and Kate, and finally the reason for the holes. It's one of my favorite examples of sort of separate narratives knitting together brilliantly at the end. Now there's this uh, old uh, Yiddish joke that explains the difference between a shlemiel, who's an inept, clumsy person, and a shlemazel, a very unlucky person. And the joke is a shlemiel is somebody who often spills his soup, and the shlemazel is the person it lands on. And can we say that Stanley and his really his whole family are kind of the def almost the dictionary definitions of shlemazels? And what is it about that condition that makes him such an identifiable character? That's a great question, because when we talk about any kind of children's books, one of the things to keep in mind is that these young readers are really looking to connect to character, to relate to character. And so we always want to talk about, you know, what what about this character is so relatable? So I think in Stanley's case, it's this idea that we all have to find a framework for dealing with our lives. And nobody is more familiar with that than the 9, 10, 12-year-old readers of this book. So Stanley's family has this backstory of a boy in the old country who tried to win over a girl's affection and ended up disrespecting a fortune teller. She cursed him, and then that's it. That's the curse. That's the bad luck that Stanley is currently suffering from. So Stanley's mom and dad, they seem to take the curse in stride. They have very sunny attitudes about it. But Stanley seems to believe it. This, I think, is immediately relatable because we're always looking for meaning as people, as readers, as writers. So when Stanley's wrongfully accused and sent to this ridiculous work camp, working for a mysterious warden and digging holes all day long, he has to create meaning from it somehow. And as humans, we are meaning-making machines. So this kind of narrative of being unlucky is how Stanley is dealing with his story. Now, the other character we get to know um, uh, as almost as well as Stanley, uh, maybe not quite as well, is uh, Hector Zeroni, who's known in the camp as Zero. Can you talk a little bit about who this character is and his particular story and how it, how it fits in with Stanley's own story? So we get a lot of sort of underdog characters who are cast aside by society in this book, which also makes them immediately relatable, right? Zero is a kid who doesn't really seem to take himself very seriously. He doesn't know how to read. He doesn't think he counts for very much. And everyone else is pretty happy to agree with him and disregard him, but not Stanley. And this is ultimately very, very sympathetic of Stanley because Stanley sees an opportunity to do some good here. And maybe if he can't change his own luck, maybe he can change zeros a little bit. He maybe feels like he was left behind by fortune too, and he doesn't want the same to happen to zero. So zero runs away at one point. And when he does, the warden and the camp leaders are really happy to let him go because he is, he's kind of a nothing to them. But Stanley decides to go after him. And what he doesn't know is that him and zero are actually all bound up in this narrative. That's very multi-generational and they're actually fated to be friends but if Stanley didn't take this big action and go after Zero and sort of advocate for Zero, he never would have found that out. 
And you touched on this a little bit, but uh, um, at the beginning of the novel, Stanley's, like I said, the schlamazel, but he's not that at the end. He does change. And some of it is circumstances, of course. Events happen uh, to him. But there are also kind of internal things that happen to Stanley that makes him a different person uh, at the end. And I'm just wondering, um, what is it? do you think uh, kids might take for this who think of themselves kind of like Stanley at the beginning where nothing really good seems to happen to them? Yes. And I, I love this. So uh, in terms of that earlier question, I was saying, you know, everyone's looking for a way to interpret their own circumstances. And the really inspirational piece here is this idea that luck doesn't actually define you because Stanley comes into it feeling very much like a victim of this long ago decided fate. So when he showed up for his punishment at Green Lake, he seemed to think that bad things were inevitable. But if you believe in bad fate, you have to believe in good fate too. You can't just believe in bad luck because um, that means somebody else is getting all the good luck. So you, you kind of have to believe in good luck too. So when Stanley starts to take some risks at the camp, when he stands up for himself, when he stands up for zero, his quote unquote luck changes and suddenly he becomes incredibly lucky and everything comes together in this incredible way. And so I think for kids who are dragging and feeling like their luck will never change and that their circumstances are set, this story reminds them that if they take action or if they stand up for what they believe in or if they don't just resign themselves, because at the beginning, Stanley definitely resigns himself. I think that coin will flip or maybe there is no such thing as good luck or bad luck. Maybe it's all about who we are and how we exist in the circumstances around us. This is kind of an unusual novel. It's it's kind of hard to classify where you'd put it on the bookshelf. It's 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 comedic, but it's also serious at times. There's kind of a gritty realness to it, but there's a exaggerated fancifulness to it as well. It's kind of a coming of age story, but it's also a mystery, and there's also satire involved. Uh, how would you characterize this book, or is that really beside the point to try to pigeonhole it in some way? Honestly, this is why I love this book so much. It defies characterization completely, as you suggest. So it's incredibly funny. There are these uh, killer lizards and onions appearing at the top of the mountain. This is all incredibly fanciful. Then the warden and some of the other characters who run the camp are ridiculous. I've called it ridiculous a few times, but that's like in a very good way. It's a term of endearment. Um, And then there's this backstory with Sam and Mary Lou and Kate, and it's heartbreaking and it's earnest. So it makes it very difficult to talk about this book in terms of a publishing context. Uh, When you look at the children's book publishing industry, um, you realize that they love their categories. This is an action adventure. This is a sci-fi. This is a fantasy. Um, And I work with aspiring writers all day, and it's inescapable that they want to sort of define their work and slot in somewhere. And aspiring writers see a book like Holes and they think, oh, maybe uh, Lewis Sacker did it so I can mix up a bunch of genres together and it will find a home. But the thing to remember is that books like Holes are so popular and unique and well-respected because they have broken the mold in such a great way. Like this could have been a mess 
<laughs> this could have been a hot mess, but he makes it look so easy. So I think that this is a singular book to be savored and enjoyed. Not really a useful lesson in how to write middle grade, because I, it's just an inimitable treasure in in my eyes. And following up on, you know, the, the way he sort of pulls this off, this is a novel about kids, including several kids of color, basically doing uh, forced labor in this camp that's basically a prison. And it it sounds like it could have been a very sort of dark novel and could easily have been written that way, but it's not. Um, and what is it about the tone or the way he conveys this tone uh, that he manages to pull off what could have been a very different novel but makes it accessible and actually kind of fun to read. Yeah, I think you're right. In less capable hands, this wouldn't be touched with a 10-foot pole, I don't think, because kids of color doing forced physical labor, that's a big yikes. Um, I think what he does so masterfully is by giving this very, very sympathetic, beautifully done subplot to a character of color. So, there are the great friendships that develop between Stanley and some of these other kids there. There's a very diverse crowd at the camp. Um, but the other, the other kind of backstory piece that comes into it, um, that addresses the race issue is, um, that of Kate Barlow and Sam. So she's a school teacher. She's a Caucasian school teacher and she falls in love with Sam, who's this African American character. This is the past, um, in this town of, Green Lake that we learn about and the townspeople find out and they kill Sam. And this tragedy is what turns Kate into an outlaw. But Sam's portrayal has been so kind and so earnest that readers automatically root for him and they start to hate the racist society that made his death possible. And so that immediately gets readers kind of thinking about race in this very accepting and sympathetic and empathetic way. Plus, Stanley's status as an outcast makes him give everyone a fair shake. So there are a lot of characters of color like Zero. Stanley treats them all as equals. So characters like Stanley, who focus on everyone's basic humanity, and Sam and Zero, they emerge as the heroes of the story. And even further, Camp Green Lake and the entire administration are so ridiculous that we don't really see them as credible overlords. They're very much the enemy. And not even an evil enemy, just an enemy that we can't take seriously. So I think all of these elements sort of combined with the humanity versus the ridiculousness of the sort of ruling class, quote unquote, they really diffuse the potential for a topical powder keg. Now, along with the um, the tone and sort of the mixing of genres that he does, uh, this novel has a, a very unusual structure. It goes back and forth in time constantly between Stanley's current story and this, the story of his family kissing uh, Kate Barlow and so on. And it isn't really clear in, until close to the end how it's all connected. And why does this work, this going back and forth as opposed to a straight chronological uh, order? Yeah, the storytelling here is really interesting. So Stanley is very much our main character. But the problem is, if you were going to go chron chronologically through the story, we would meet Kate and Sam and sort of these historical characters of uh, the town of Green Lake first. And then you'd introduce the main character halfway through, which doesn't work. I mean, universally, you really want to meet the main character right away. And so that puts us in a contemporary narrative first with Stanley, and then he starts weaving in um, the historical narrative. So there's 
because you cover so much ground in terms of time, there's almost no other way to do it. We're not going to care about those past characters until we care about our main character and Stanley is presented in the present. So when Kate and Sam are first introduced, there seems to be no connection. They don't seem to tie together, but readers go with it because we already like Stanley. And so if, if it seems like the book is going out on a limb, we're more willing to sort of give it that slack. Then the two timelines play out and the stories start to twist around one another and it all becomes clear. But if Sacker hadn't been using the alternating narratives, I don't think the tension of everything would have been nearly as high by jumping from thread to thread. And this is something that I work with a lot with my clients. You know, you, you leave one thread at sort of a cliffhanger or high note, you pick up the other thread, then you leave that thread on a cliffhanger, then you pick up back where you started. You know, it's this really masterful way of creating tension and mystery. And even if the reader doesn't know how it comes together, that momentum is what keeps them going. Now, a a lot of events, you know, things happen in this book, and there's a a lot of characters. Although it's not a very long book, a surprising number of events actually happen in the book. But in the end, um, Lewis Acker decides to call his novel that one-word title, Holes. And this is a little unusual question, but why do you think the title he picks is that? And what do you think? Is 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 he trying to tell us something about how to look at the story by choosing this particular title? So this was a great question. Um, If I've seemed put together in some of the other responses, this one was really a head scratcher for me. So I'm going to take a stab at it. And this may not be the right answer. I may be overthinking it. But here's, here's, here's my shot. So to me, identity is one of the primary themes. You know, who is Stanley, if not for the curse and his family's past? You know, what is his identity if we take that away? And who is zero, if not for his unfortunate upbringing and what everybody else thinks of him, including, you know, society at large? Who's Catherine, the school teacher, who becomes Kiss and Kate, the outlaw? Who is Sam? He's a lonely member, lowly member of his community who everyone looks down on except when they need him. So everyone kind of, all the main characters are struggling with who they are in relation to where they fit into the bigger world. So this is also, of course, incredibly relatable to the middle grade audience because they're all discovering their identities. So to me, here's where I stretch. (laughs) A whole can be seen as nothing. So when the warden looks down into these holes, she sees that they're empty. They do not contain what she's looking for. But if Stanley or Zero are looking into the hole, I might see that hole as an opportunity, something to be filled, something to be explored, something that can contain a possibility. Like for them, if they find something in the hole, that's the possibility to have a free day. Or if they run away from the camp, a hole is a place to hide and get away. So the holes represent a lot more uh, for them than they do for some of the you know more close-minded characters. So a hole is just an invitation to dig deeper. Plus, there's also something ridiculous about a book called Holes. This goes with the comedic, satirical tone of it. It's such a serious, heartfelt, like award-winning masterpiece book with such a simple, silly name. And I think that that sort of attacks head on the many contradictions of this book. I think it's a very good argument for the title. <laughs> okay. Now, are there any passages from the book that you'd like to share? 
So you did say earlier that the book moves quickly. You know, there's a lot, there are a lot of events crammed in. And I think if I read to you the entirety of chapter two, which covers maybe two paragraphs worth of material, you can see why, like the writing style is very snappy, very quick, very engaging. So I'm actually just going to read you the entirety of chapter two. The reader is probably asking, why would anyone go to Camp Green Lake? Most campers weren't given a choice. Camp Green Lake is a camp for bad boys. If you take a bad boy and make him dig a hole every day in the hot sun, it will turn him into a good boy. That was what some people thought. Stanley Yelnots was given a choice. The judge said, you may go to jail or you may go to Camp Green Lake. Stanley was from a poor family. He had never been to camp before. And that's it. And what I love about this sort of introduction, you get a lot of context for him and you also get this sort of, so this is Stanley when he's sliding into the inevitable, right? So Stanley doesn't feel very empowered there. He's like, well, I've never been to camp. You know, you get kind of an Eeyore vibe from him. Of course, it's screamingly funny because we know that this is a juvenile work camp, but Stanley decides to go there because he's never been to camp. We learn about his family's backstory, which is a little bit unfortunate. And we start to get some of that ridiculous logic of you take a bad boy, you put him in the hot sun, you make him dig holes, he turns into a good boy, which doesn't make sense to anyone. But this is this is an introduction into a world where there is actually a juvenile detention camp operating under that thought process. <laughs> so it's just, it accomplishes so much. And this is what I was saying when I was like, well, you know, he really makes it look easy. He, uh, this is, I don't know. I just, it's such a nice, uh, plunge into that world. Mary, uh, thank you so much for picking this book. Give me a chance to reread it again. It's been a while since I had a chance to uh, read it again and for taking the time to talk to me about it today. And I do have to add one more thing. Uh, it wouldn't be clear from this. Uh, this is actually the second interview we've done because we've done, I've done a, uh, an interview with you before and there were technical difficulties and it kind of disappeared. And you were gracious enough to agree to do this again. And I thought you did a terrific job. So I just want to let you know I really do appreciate you doing that. Of course. It was my pleasure. And my favorite part was getting to reread Holes too. I couldn't, I looked through your entire podcast history and I couldn't believe that nobody had snapped this one up. So I feel very lucky for the opportunity. Oh, absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you. You can find Mary's website about her book at kidlit.com and her website about her consulting services at marycole.com. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music, titled All Together, is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art was created through Canva, which can be found at www.canva.com. You can visit me at jleemont.com or follow me on Twitter at DreamGardensJLM. The Dream Gardens podcast is also available through iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. And if you'd like to participate in a Dream Gardens podcast, go to the contact page on my website and send me a note telling me who you are and what book you'd like to talk about. And until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading. <laughs>